Okay, Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Nahmaduhu nusalli ala rasulihil kareem amma ba'd. We express our praise and gratitude to Allah Ta'ala, and we seek blessings on the Prophet, may peace be upon him. Yeah. And so we're continuing our exploration of, of Khaled Abul Fadl's book. Last time we had this extensive discussion on, on the fact that so much of Islamic law actually does not get implemented. And to make that point another way, uh, so much of Islamic law winds up being theoretical, uh, written by people in the Muslim equivalent of an ivory tower. And that is also the case for a lot of Islamic law today, that if you contact a scholar, uh, the further away the scholar is from you in terms of uh, uh, physical location, uh, the more likely you're going to get a very ultra-generalized theoretical answer. And the idea is simply that you want, uh, just like for your Islamic tutelage, you want to go to someone who knows your world and, and then is addressing your world. And especially in matters of Islamic law, you want someone who knows the particulars of your culture. And, and so, uh, because two different scholars, let's say, uh, you're, you're Desi and you go to a Desi scholar and an Arab scholar, chances are the Desi scholar is going to give you a, 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 um, an answer uh, more appropriate for you, just because uh, assuming that they know your particular culture. Uh, nevertheless, we have this issue where so much of Islamic law is, is not being prescribed. And a lot of it is often being circumscribed. Um, so uh, let's start with this paragraph that begins with by circumscribing the enforcement of the rights of the divine. Uh, who would like to read? Um, or honey, who wants to volunteer? I can start. <laughs> All right. Um, Bismillah. By cir circumscribing the enforcement of the rights of divine, the classical jurists of Islam constrain the power of the state to act as God's avenger. However, doctrinally, the rights of God as a concept played an important normative and ethical role in the Sharia dynamics taking place within Muslim societies. The rights of God symbolically represented the moral boundaries of appropriate social mores and values in the public space. This does not mean, as some contemporary reformists have claimed, that the rights of God are equivalent to or substantially the same as public interests or space. Normatively, the Sharia is expected to pervade the private and public spaces by appealing to the private consciences consciousness of individuals and to societies as collectivities. But there is one way this could happen, and that is through voluntary compliance. For the most part, Islamic jurisprudence invoked the compulsory powers of the state in order to enforce obligations or rights owed to people, not to God. Functionally, Islamic law was thought of as a means of empowering the state to act on God's behalf, but as setting limits to the powers of the state through the impositions of the rule of law. Okay, yeah, let's Therefore, stop right here for let's stop right here for a moment. So, so the question that's being raised is, <clears throat> if we have this body of principles, and and then by extension laws, what is the purpose of them? And and so the common notion is that. In the absence of the prophet, peace be upon him, the state replaces the prophet. Okay. Uh, 
But then who does the prophet represent? The prophet represents Allah Ta'ala. And so the state takes on the responsibility to act as God's ambassador. Ambassador is probably not the right word, God's uh, arm, so to speak, of implementation of his will. And so in the matter of crime, that means that the state, the polity becomes God's avenger for matters of injustice that, that the state takes on the responsibility of implementing justice. Now, that is in contrast to, uh, that's historically. Many contemporary thinkers say that the role of the state is to implement public interest and, and to save uh, public interest. So how would you gather, uh, what would be the consequence of, these, of the difference of these two approaches? One is to see the state as God's avenger in matters of injustice. And the other approach is to see the state as pursuing public interest. Any thoughts, lawyers? I imagine like a Venn diagram, you know, because like God's, um, God is avenging it for the public's interest. Like it's in our interest for him to, you know, do what he does. So that would be a way to, to reconcile the two. Mm -hmm. And Fadla Fadla is suggesting that these are two fundamentally different things. Yeah. Uh, because instead of looking at public interest, we could instead look at it as the rights of God, that God is avenging his own rights. Mm -hmm. that, that you as creation, me as creation, if we're violating his laws, public interest or not, we violated his rights. And then putting this into further practice, what that, could, what that would mean theoretically is that there's less wiggle room, less flexibility. Mm -hmm. We you talked could. about that, I'm sorry. Didn't we talk about that earlier? Like rights of God versus rights of people. Yeah, and right. so this would be the distinction mm -hmm. between rights of God and rights of people. Mm -hmm. And and so uh, usually in terms of, of the categorizations of all the actions and laws and such, rights of God, we're referring to acts of worship, mm -hmm. right? And so, so nobody has the power to forgive someone for skipping prayers mm -hmm. without justification. No one has the power to forgive someone for skipping zakat or hajj or, 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 or fasting, etc. And, and those acts of worship are usually in the category of the rights of God. And by creating a separate category of rights of people, uh, that is almost, what's the word, for lack of the word, uh, better word, daring, even though it's consensus. Uh, because now you're saying there are some things that people have the right and ability to, call, uh, to give forgiveness for. You know, so if I've done wrong to you, you have the authority to pursue punishment, uh, not only in this life, but to potentially in the next life. And there is an ongoing theological question. If I wrong you and you do not forgive me, can I seek forgiveness from Allah? Mm -hmm. And so you find this gets debated and a common sentiment is that if you, the victim, are not going to forgive me, then Allah is not gonna forgive me. Mm -hmm. 
So if, however, we're looking at things from the lens of public interest, then there becomes much more space for flexibility uh, in terms of implementation, modification of all these laws. And he's saying historically it was not public interest, but it was it was literally looked look at through the lens of God's rights and God is the avenger. So in the end of the day, fundamentally, where does Islamic law apply? It's voluntary compliance. And so think of whatever are the uh, increasingly hot button issues of today uh, uh, for which there may not be an easy answer, something like stem cell research. Can we take the cells of human embryos and, and use that for research and then by extension use that for medication? So it seems so far the minimum amount of rulings we have, people are saying no, uh, but that's voluntary compliance, whether I listen to it or not. And so I might find myself choosing between what uh, this scholar is ruling if they say, no, you can't. And it might evaluate, all right, okay, let's say this scholar has done thorough research. They actually thoroughly know what stem cell research is and everything. And let's say hypothetically, this person says, no, you cannot because of the use of of embryonic human embryonic cells but then to my, so that's to my left and to my right is my parent who is very weak and there's enough data to show that stem cell usage uh gives this brand new vitality to to, to people's bones and so the, it's voluntary compliance and in the modern nation state, in the long term, the long game, the modern nation state wins. So, so in the same way that marijuana has been increasingly legalized in our society, the consequence is going to be you're going to see far more consumption of marijuana in the Muslim community. And, and this is a big aspect of Islamic law throughout history, but especially today. And, and so function, functionally, Islamic law was not thought of not as a means for empowering the state to act on God's behalf, but as setting limits to the powers of the state through the imposition of the rule of law. This is another really, really important point. This is also consistent uh, with, with the American Constitution, isn't it? That especially with the Bill of Rights, the goal is to limit the powers of the state. And the whole structure of the Constitution, as you two know much better than I do, it's to, it's to mitigate power. Okay, any questions, thoughts about any of this? So hopefully the sense you're getting is as, as we apply this more and more to the real world situation, we're getting a sense of what works, what doesn't work, and how do you approach thing, but, things. But I, I would suggest that this whole idea of voluntary compliance is one of the most important points of Islamic law. Now, that is not the same as listening to or rejecting a scholar, because it may be that I don't trust this particular scholar's credentials, or I don't trust this particular scholar's research. Okay, let's continue. Uh, let's see, uh, I'm gonna want you to continue until we get to the end of the paragraph, which is right there. Okay. 
Therefore, right? So therefore, the greater legacy of the Islamic tradition deals with questions involving muamalat or social intercourses and dealings or the resolution of conflicts arising from competing claims and interests. Questions of social etiquette or proper public manners were not treated in books of jurisprudence, but were relegated to the status of moralistic pamphlets, written often by religious preachers or sometimes by qualified jurists for the consumption of the laity. Okay, yeah. So, so social etiquette manners, that's not in the realm of jurisprudence. And so here he's saying kitab al raqaiq um, if you'd find this, this would be in the category of what we call adab. Mm-hmm. And, and so if we were to imagine um, the, the big categories of discourse, one is Islamic law, another one would be purification, another one would be character and, and adab, so adab and akhlaq, uh, but those would consider to be outside of the realm. But a lot of what is written in Islamic law is mu'amalat, which is social interaction trying to find, uh, you know, what are the proper ways, for example, of conducting a marriage? What are the proper ways of conducting a divorce? What are the proper ways of, of, of trying to resolve certain types of conflict and such? As opposed, and, and but still, as books written about it, uh, separate from the judiciary. Ongoing issue. And, and again, a point that a lot of people don't understand when they idealize a theoretical Islamic state. The, the point again being that the nation state is a modern phenomenon. And we have only a few examples in history, in imperial history, in empire, the history of Muslim empires where, where the, there was an attempt to codify law. And so it's kind of like this whole mix. You have the judiciary, you have the court system, and then you have the legal scholars, which are a different population than the judges. And what they're writing is not necessarily what is uh, being imposed upon the judges to use to rule. The big, big uh, mixture. Okay. <laughs> so now we're going to speak about the further deterioration of Islamic law. Uh, honey, if you can see this, you want to read? Yeah, where are we? Sorry. The, the first... big section, modern modernity and the deterioration oh. of Islamic law. Yeah. Modernity and the deterioration of Islamic law. With the advent of the age of colonialism, the Islamic legal system was consistently replaced by legal systems imported from Western colonial states. The factors contributing to the deterioration, can't say that word right, deterioration and replacement of Islamic law are numerous. But primary among those factors was the pressure exerted by foreign powers for a system of concessions and special jurisdictions that served the economic and political interests of the colonizers and a parasitical native elite that derived and maintained its privileged status from the financial, military, and cultural institutions of colonial powers. Hmm. Frequently, colonial powers and their dependent native elites found that their economic and commercial interests were not well served by the pluralism and localized indeterminacy of the Islamic legal system. In response, some colonial powers, such as Great Britain, created hybrid legal institutions such as the mixed courts of Egypt and the Anglo-Mohammedan courts of India. 
Of greater significance, however, was the fact that colonial powers and their native ruling elites found that the organized legal guilds and the system of religious endowments, Alkaf, that supported these guilds leveraged a considerable amount of power that was often used to resist the hegemonic powers of the modern state. Throughout the Muslim world, this led to a protracted process by which colonial powers or in the post-colonial age, local nationalistic governments consistently undermined the autonomy of and eventually completely controlled the traditional legal guilds and the network of religious endowments, not only depriving them of any meaningful political role, but also deconstructing their very legitimacy in Muslim societies. Oh, that's okay. Uh, what are your your initial reflections? I, I guess like that they codified it for their purposes. Yeah. Yeah. Not unlike how law in our society, its implementation seems to, even though we don't officially have races, seems to privilege certain races and 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 cut away other races. This was a willful project, especially by the French and especially, especially by the British. And, and what was taking place? So obviously part of the idea of colonialism was that you have natural resources that I want and I'm going to do whatever it takes to take them away from you. And, and so once I had established power in your land, I had to figure out how to justify it. And what does this mean? It means that if, I've, if I have power, I've already bought off the leaders, right? And then who are the other people that have force or uh, power in your society? Here, he makes reference to the guilds. And so the organized legal guilds would be either the community of scholars. Uh, and historically, uh, it was also the Sufi networks. These are the people that, that, that held uh, power and so then the goal was to dismantle them and how did they survive they had alqaf which is plural for waqaf which is another really good word to know and, and these were religious endowments so how does a lot of islamic work in america uh, operate today they'll have an annual fundraising dinner right and they'll have ongoing fundraising how did it operate in much of Islamic history? You would have a fund, um, an endowment that people would contribute to, and that's what kept people alive, or that's what uh, allowed operations to happen. <clears throat> and the whole uh, system of endowments throughout Islamic history, I think, is one of the fascinating aspects of our civilization, that different Muslim empires had endowments for literally everything. So commonly, of course, the schools would have endowments, and then uh, how are the endowments funded? It might be that somebody wealthy has donated the, you know, a certain amount of, of their income from their farms to the endowments. Or merchants would uh, keep a certain amount donated to the endowment. And so schools would be a big recipient of the endowments, but there'd be endowments for literally everything. In the same way that we today have domestic violence shelters, we had those in history as well. And in the same way today we have hospitals, we had those in history as well. And, and so hospitals today, for example, 
uh, are running on funding that they're getting from the government mixed with income they're getting from healthcare companies mixed with you know, payments they're getting from, from patients and such in contrast to violent shelters, which are getting, which are, are relying upon funding from donors and grants and such, and then some, some amount of, of donations. Here you have religious endowments that are sponsoring these things. To the point that in some places, there were even endowments for things like your dishes that if your dish broke, you take it to this one office and they'll give you another dish. So what structures do we have in a place in our society that sort of replace the endowments? It would be the insurance system, you know, health insurance, car insurance, all those things, you know, life insurance, homeowners insurance, all that stuff. And historically, and so today you have a business that you go to and give money to, and hopefully you'll get a payoff when necessary, whereas historically you would have endowments. Yeah. And so, so the colonizers would seize or dismantle these endowments. And then that would take away the lifeblood of the scholars and historically the lifeblood of the Sufis. I don't remember if we talked about this before. This is not to get too far off the topic. If you go out down Devon Avenue and you look at a lot of the restaurants, the, the restaurant and then the food that they're especially known for, it's literally a legacy of a Sufi Tariqa. So, for example, Sabri, I'm sorry? You, yeah, you mentioned Garib Nawaz, right? Yeah, Garib Nawaz is one. You know, Sabri Nahari is another. And so a lot of the Sufi networks in the Indian subcontinent part of their effort was to feed the poor and they would often have their particular dish or the particular approach. So Harib Nawaz, you go there even now, their food is a fraction of the cost of everyone else's food. And Sabri Nihari Nihari was, was the food that they would provide. The Sabri Chisti order would provide back home. You know, it's interesting how Nihari now is sort of like the, the food of, of the elite Historically, things like Nahari, Paya, and all that stuff, that was the food of the poor, because of what sympathy and grievance are. So, so uh, this is also what happened, for example, in Egypt, but not by the colonizers, with Al-Azhar University. Al-Azhar University is a thousand years old, and for about 950 of those thousand years, it operated on independent endowments. But also think about the consequences that, that has on scholarship. It gives you it gives you all kinds of freedom in terms of your scholarship. But then Nasser, who is the dictator of Egypt, he takes away that power of the endowment, and so Al-Azhar becomes an art, uh, an institution of the state. You know. Or likewise, the uh, the school in Qayroun uh, in uh, Morocco. Uh, as I'm sure you know, was formed by two sisters who inherited an endowment from their father. And they use that to create a, a madrasa that is now uh, the oldest of all the universities in the world, older than all other. And so, yeah, the British came along and uh, to, to seize power, they had to institutionalize themselves with these things like Anglo-Islamic, Anglo-Mohammedan powers and such. And we're still facing the legacy of all of that. A lot of people don't realize that that's literally the structure. So if you were to go to 
like the CIA website will give you uh, a sense of how the law of different countries operates. Go to every Muslim majority country and you'll see it's a mixture of Islamic law and British common law, Islamic law and French Napoleonic code. Yeah. That's the reality of the 21st century that we're in. Why? So that they could institutionally keep control and institutionally, you know, keep wiping away all the natural resources of the local state that they're occupying. Okay, uh, let's see. So here, I'll even have fun. I'll read this paragraph. Perhaps more destructive to the Islamic legal system was the fact that the institutional replacement of Islamic law was accompanied by a process of cultural transformation that led to the deconstruction of the very epistemological foundations of Islamic jurisprudence. And so looking at this point, uh, I think we're still only beginning to grasp how thorough colonization was. Because when we're imagining colonization, we're basically looking at more from the lens of power. And I would even suggest, you know, these bizarro gender issues that we have in the subcontinent. Uh, I would even suggest that's probably related to the impositions of the British and the French. Because they seem to match Victorian culture so much. You know, there's, uh, there's this prominent uh, Egyptian feminist who just died earlier this week. I don't know if you're familiar with her. Her name, her name is Nawal Asadawi. And super, super militant feminist. You know, criticism of, of every single thing that even slightly reeks of patriarchy. Right. And, and so there's a lot of people who are unfortunately celebrating her death, which they should not be doing because she's now with Allah Ta'ala. And so you gain nothing by condemning her now. Um, but think of something like FGM. She was very, very vocal in stopping a lot of FGM practices in Egypt where it was common practice not to get too graphic for, you know, some people to come into a girl's bedroom when she's 10 years old, you know, or younger, and, and conduct their FGM and pretend that it's Islamic. And so she was a very uh, vicious uh, uh, opponent of all this. But uh, I wouldn't be surprised if even those practices came from the Middle medieval Europeans and the Enlightenment period Europeans. The fact that it still happens is now on us. But the legacy I'm suggesting is actually coming from outside of us. And so the epistemological foundations of Islamic jurisprudence are all completely wiped out. And, and so what is the net result is that a whole unified theoretical system, the theory gets erased and all we have are a bunch of sets of laws. And, and that's sort of where we're at right now. The colonial powers not only exerted considerable pressures toward greater legal uniformity and determinism, but in what has been described as a process of cultural invasion, both the ruling elites and intelligentsia of various Muslim societies turned mostly to Western and to a much lesser extent Eastern Europe, uh, Eastern Europe for inspiration and guidance in all fields of the arts and sciences. Increasingly, educational institutions and systems in the Muslim world were fashioned or modeled along the lines of the educational systems of the major colonial powers. So this we all, we all recognize, right? That 
many of the prominent universities in the subcontinent and elsewhere are basically Western institutions in terms of their structure and style. And systems of the model world were, uh, yeah, from the beginning of the 19th century onward and to this very day, an academic degree from Western schools became a cultural symbol of prestige and privilege. In the legal field, a Western education became a powerful venue for upward professional mobility and social status, and this led to a marked deterioration in the position authority of classical Muslim jurists, as well as the role of centuries-old schools of Sharia law all over the Muslim world. So this, I think, we already recognize, right? You know that many people in our societies, you know, Desi and Arab societies, uh, are give preference um, or have higher self-esteem if they have a Western education. But what's built into what he's saying is because of the esteem given to Western education, nobody cared about madrasa anymore, which meant the funding for madrasa is further depleted. But deeper than that, which we all witness, all the dumb kids then wind up going to madrasa. The smart kids go to the Western institutions and the dumb kids who can't get into the Western institutions, they go to madrasa. So then you have a generation of kids that are mediocre in terms of their academics, they become your jurists. And, and then by extension, their children, so forth and so on. And, and, and so I, I make this point to my students, they're like, even you, Professor Muzaffar? I'm like, yeah, yeah, I'm the dumbest of all of you. And so now I'm teaching all of you. But that's, that's one of the huge consequences of colonization on the practice of, of Islam, that by making their institutions the, the, the benchmark to aspire to. And it could be for standards, but it could also just be because they're Western. That Islamic law became the realm of, of, of the dumbest of the Muslims. How do y'all feel about that? I totally see that. Even with scholars, they have so much more clout if they've got that Western thing as well. Like they might have a master's in Islamic studies, but if they've got that American PhD, <laughs> you know, that makes a huge difference. Oh, totally. Or they're like, oh, he's a doctor also. So he's such a better scholar automatically. Yeah. You'd be surprised how many Muslim preachers, how many traditionally trained scholars have come to me for advice on getting PhDs. And I'd ask them, is it because you want to study something? Or do you want it for the prestige and the likes for the prestige? Yeah. yeah. But that's what people will listen to also. So it's yeah. almost like you have to have it or else mm -hmm. no one's going to listen to you. Yeah, exactly. So when did this start happening? Like. So, so colonization, when does that begin? It begins around the 1500s. Okay. And, and then, then it starts accelerating in the 1700s. Uh, officially, uh, what's the timeline in the Indian subcontinent? You have the Dutch East India Company, which gets established around the 1500s and eventually gets released, re, uh, replaced by the British East India Company. Now, this is an independent corporation. And, and so they are given special protection by, by their own, uh, so to speak, police forces and such and, and funding from people back in Britain. And they're basically traitors that are above the law. 
and and so these are the people that are uh, marketing the salt. These are the people that are trying to sell opium. All these things um, to deplete, in the case of the subcontinent, everything that the subcontinent has, and likewise for Egypt, you know, um, everything. It's the French over there. And then official colonization, meaning the British government coming in, that's the period that's called the British Raj, which is literally an absurd name. This happens in 1875 up till 1947. But it's 300 years before that, that all this stuff is beginning. They just pretended it was independent business doing things in a legitimate way. So the Mughal Empire died around the 15th century? So the Mughal Empire is in Northern India, um, starting from Afghanistan, stretching through Northern India. That's starting in the 1500s. Okay, 15. Okay, so and I... and so that's Babar. If you're familiar with him, not to be confused with the, with the comic, and in all the Indian movies, so Joe Akbar, all those guys, Mughal Azam, and so uh, that essentially is ending in 1857, officially. But their power is is steadily getting depleted throughout the 1800s oh. to the point that they, they they become sort of like the way we think of the british monarchy today they're there people love them uh, they have wealth but they don't really have any power no so i'm wondering as colonialism spread and the western education became uh this high reaching star um why what were the muslims doing what were the scholars doing at that time did we have no money did we have no influence back then so it's sort of like a uh, one of the important points of colonization is that we are colonizable right so it's not simply that that europeans came in and stole everything um especially after the industrial revolution so the industrial revolution in the 1700s what did that allow for? That allowed for mass production and mass production of what? Weapons. And so in this period of time, you have the Ottoman Empire, which gets formed in the 1300s and is already declining. And then what's common among the rise and decline of civilizations, there's all kinds of theories, but some of the things that are common in the decline of civilizations is that they have to start going to war just to sustain themselves. And if you think about America and the wars we go to, some of it's, it's going to ring very, very familiar. And, and then they go into debt to other countries, again, to sustain themselves. And so the Ottomans start getting deeper and deeper into debt to European banks. And, and so what do the Europeans do? A lot of this gets traced after the 1500s to about 1648, the Treaty of Westphalia. Europe was in all these ongoing battles between Protestant nations, and they start setting up a peace treaty. And that peace treaty really becomes the fuel for what becomes the modern nation state as well as imperialism. Just, I mean, there's, there's a whole lot to, to the treaty and what happens there. And, and so what, we're, what I'm saying is essentially what we see is that the Europeans really start organizing, getting themselves out of the dark ages. And so they revamp their economies, they revamp their structures of government, you know, from feudal lords to mercantile economies and such, which is why imperialism happens. And in meanwhile, 
our societies are in a decline. We were in a peak for a thousand years, you know, almost continuously from the time of the prophet, peace be upon him. But now this massive general decline is taking place all over the place. And, and so they walk in and take advantage of it. Sort of like what we see China doing right now with America. You know, China is in this moment where America is on this decline and is steadily replacing America all over the globe. And, and so uh, that's what happened to these Muslim nations. And so in some of those places, you have people that are rising up trying to fight off the, uh, the colonizers. Uh, but, you know, the, they're, there's too much force. And, and the theory is that it all ended in the 1940s with the establishment of the United Nations and that was looked at as the end of, of colonization. But what actually looks like is that it was just a restructuring of the whole world, that colonization didn't really actually end, that we're still in it. How? Because if you look at just about every nation in the world, every third world nation in the world, they're in severe debt to the International Monetary Fund of the World Bank. So I'm suggesting we might give it a different name, but colonization is still going on in full force. I mean, Imran Khan even made this point in one of his speeches like a year or two ago, that because his predecessors pick up these ridiculous loans, uh, half of his budget for a whole nation has to get spent on paying off the interest payments of these loans. And so, how are any of our countries, and it's not just the Muslim countries, it's the African countries, the South American countries, how are we going to get out of any of this debt? So, can we reach that point where I've totally ruined your days? No, it's, it is what it is. <laughs> I mean, that's the bottom line. Yeah. And, and so, in terms of changing things, uh, we're not, we're talking about something that's centuries long as a project of changing things. And, you know, I'm speaking as a Pakistani, you know, <clears throat> there's a lot of belief among Pakistanis that Pakistani was divinely ordained, you know, gets established on 20, 27th of Ramadan and all that. Or you could say that Pakistan, India, modern India and Bangladesh and East Pakistan were established just to keep that region, you know, fighting, you know, fighting itself. And then you have Pakistan and East Pakistan split, so it becomes Pakistan and Bangladesh. And, and so it could be that it was a divinely reveal, a special, divinely favored moment. And, or, now it's just more of a legacy of colonization, keep people all split up. Because imagine if the Indian subcontinent was one state stretching from what is modern Pakistan all the way to Bangladesh. Then the, the Muslims rule India. And then if you added Afghanistan, then it's even bigger. And then think about the establishment of the state of Israel almost exactly the same time as the establishment of the state of Pakistan. Pakistan is August 1947, Israel is May 1948. And how does it get established? The same form. You have Gaza, 
and then the state of Israel, and then you have the West Bank. Muslim state, Jewish state, Muslim state, as opposed to Muslim state, Hindu state, Muslim state. So I don't think these things are coincidences, and I don't think this is, these are conspiracy theories. I think this is just straight up wise politicking by the Europeans. So, any, any no, last thoughts? Thank you for that history lesson. Sure. Uh, a person who's really, really great in terms of contemporary writings about, about the decline of of Mughal India and such is William Dalrymple. And she comes out with these heavily written, heavily researched, beautifully written books. I forgot what his most recent book is. It literally came out in like the last four months. Can you spell the last name? Yeah, uh, I'll put it in the chat box. Okay. Or wait, let me see if I can just pull it up on, on internet. <laughs> Thank you. So Bernard Lewis has his own view, though, right? Which is yeah. I mean Bernard Lewis since I've read him, but yeah, I mean he's also worth reading because he is still. To, I mean, to be fair to him, he is uh, a big scholar and everything, uh, but he is uh, an unabashed uh, imperialist. Yeah. yeah. I remember so, reading what went wrong. I think a long yeah. time ago. But he does not. He blames the he he blames the colonized. Yeah, that's probably the the imperialist language, yeah. and so yeah, the anarchy. That's his most recent book. But Dalrymple is his name. So all these books: the Last Mogul, White Moguls, Return of the King, so on and so on. Very very interesting books. But it's, I mean, it's literally like these colonizers are just, it's almost like you want to call them demonic for how thoroughly they've completely exploited um, and transformed these lands. But that's the world. You know, the world is open for whoever wants to seize power. So it's like... Uh, if you think of you know how low the situation is of the Muslim world, I forgot who the poet is. It might be Hali. Uh, this is narrated to me in speeches as opposed to classes. Um, who a hundred years ago would say, you know, just when you think we can't get any lower in our condition, we get lower and lower and lower. So to do Muslim work itself, motivated by your love for Allah Taala that almost takes a certain injection of like Iman or like some sort of religious steroids just to have the motivation to do it and have the conviction that you can succeed. And that's not, a, that's not unlike the situation of the civil rights movement as well, right? Cool. Any other questions, thoughts, reflections? Okay. Well, I mean, it seems like our class is, has not been as much about the, the, the theory and structure of Islamic law as much as it has been about, you know, the cultural history of Islamic law, which I think is part of the goal of his book. If you'd like separately from this, probably after Ramadan, to do something more directly related to the operation of Islamic law, 
we can perhaps try to figure that stuff out. That would be a lot more slower and detail-oriented. Yeah, no other questions or thoughts? No, Jazakallah here. Thank you. Absolutely. So we will be, uh, let me just double check my calendar for, for the next um, uh, couple weeks because Ramadan is literally around the corner and we'll probably have to revisit what we do. And uh, Next week, my schedule looks good. The week after that is April 7th. My schedule looks good, inshallah. Then the 14th, somewhere around there is when Ramadan begins. So at least for like the last, the next two weeks, we're good. And then we'll decide maybe in the next two weeks what we want to do for Ramadan tomorrow. Alrighty. Subhanakallahumma bihamdika nashadu illa ilaha illa anta nastaghfiruka wa natubu ilayk. O Allah, subhanakallahumma glory to you. O Allah, wa bihamdika praise and gratitude are to you. Nashhadu an la ilaha illa anta. We bear witness there is no God but you. Nastaghfiruka. We seek your forgiveness. On a two-way lake and we turn to you. Okay, may Allah reward you all, inshallah, and we'll see you next week. Um,